Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your holy word. We pray this morning for our souls, that they would receive it, as we have been singing about trusting in you and the trials of life. And we pray that you'd help us to be engaged with the text of Scripture that speak about these things. We ask you to help us to find comfort as we look through your holy word. For it's there and there alone that we find you and your solutions to life. Help us, we pray. We pray that your spirit would help us to understand. You'd open up our understanding as he illuminates our minds to the truths of your word, that we would be changed by it for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've titled this morning's sermon, Trusting God, the Greatest Deterrent Against Despair. And these two psalms are loaded with ideas of despair. The word despair is mentioned several times within these few verses. So as we know, when we interpret scripture, when we see a word used over and over, especially in a short segment of scripture, it is vitally important. It is vitally important. And the, the Spirit of God and the writers of God want us to tune in to these kinds of words and the repetition of them. But I want to ask you the question. We've seen in Psalm 42, 5 and 11 and 43, 5, the word despair. What comes to your mind when I mention the word despair? What comes to your mind? What does that conjure up in your thinking when someone mentions to you, I'm in despair, or even just a word by itself, despair? For me, it automatically, you know, we play a little word association game. I think of low, low, or being down. I think that's a, an adequate word exchange there, but the word despair in related words used throughout these two psalms bring out the idea of a loss of hope. Webster's uh, revised unabridged dictionary defines despair as loss of hope and cessation of effort. Depression or dejection of the mind. The complete loss or absence of hope, while despair in the Old Testament in, in the original language means to lose heart, to be disheartened, to be broken in spirit, or disheartened to the extent of loss of motivation. All very good descriptions of the word despair. So, during our sermon time today, I will be using many words like this, and I will be using them interchangeably. You know, they all have their little nuances, but when you boil it all down, this is where it brings you to a place of low 
attitude, a being down or low, a loss of hope. This is a term we know today as depression. Sometimes it's a, it's a little bit overused. This, this word depression, everybody's depressed. I'm depressed. I, I can't do X, Y, Z because I'm depressed. I can't go there. You know, everything is a, the excuse of depression. And I'm not minimizing the word if it's used properly. It's a strong word. It's loaded with emotion, suffering, hardship. And so I don't want to minimize the word as I use it. But that's an, we're going to use that as an interchangeable, one of the interchangeable words here today. Another phrase that we use sometimes, you don't hear so much, but sometimes being down in the dumps. Maybe you hear that or you were singing the blues, right? It's a kind of an older phrase. I'm singing the blues, I'm down. Or I'm being, I'm in a slump. Someone's being in a slump. Or somehow demotivated or just weary of life. Well, John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress, the classic, captured the idea with the place he termed and known as the Slough of Despond. If you know the story, you'll know what I mean. David referred to, in, in Psalm 23, the shepherd's psalm, he referred to it as walking through the valley of the shadow of death. That's, that's heavy. That's a strong description of an extreme depression. Well, have you ever been depressed? Have you ever been in a, a state of despair? And I think we could all honestly answer, we've all been there. It doesn't matter if you're a young child or a, the oldest adult. We've all been there to some degree. We get down, you know. And so I want to look at these two psalms and, and kind of unpack some of these ideas and, and how do we find a solution when we find ourselves in a place of despondency or despair or depression or dejection or the list goes on. There's so many words that can describe this attitude. Some of us, it hits us before our feet even hit the floor in the morning when we get out of bed. It's just living in a, an attitude of angst and depression. Some people are, are prone to depression for one reason or another, but we must fight against staying in the, the dark place of depression. The scriptures are very clear on that. See, God allows us to get depressed at times, but he does not give us permission to stay there. He just doesn't. You can't find that in the scripture. God does not give us permission to stay in those places. Now, I'm not talking about uh, when there is there some valid reason for depression. There is. There are sometimes physical problems that that will, can cause us to be depressed. Brain function and physical pain, physical suffering, and those kinds of things. I'm not talking about that. God, If God brings us to a place of physical suffering and causes depression in a discouraged heart, well, there's some legitimacy to that, understandably. But I'm talking about an attitude of depression based on some circumstance of life in your life 
it carries you to that dark place of despair. Why does he not allow us to stay depressed in, in those kinds of times? Because he is our hope. He is our hope. We sing it, right? We sing about that hope. But do we really mean it? Do we really mean it when we sing it? In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. Where do you find hope in times of discouragement? Some people try to find relief in a drink, a six-pack of beer or a bottle of wine or whatever, or a, a vial of pills when drugs are introduced into the system. Some find relief by having a perpetual pity party about their own lives. Or, on the lighter side, some people just binge on watching Hallmark movies as an escape from their down thinking. Well, these things won't work. They won't work. If you're in a place where you're doing any of these things, they will not work. Maybe it's by reminiscing about the, the past and happier, happier times, happier days. You know, we, we hear the phrase, the good old days. Oh, if we were just back in the good old days. Well, you know what? These are the good old days right now. Because the good old days that you think about are not coming back. They're not. They're simply not. Um, it's just not going to happen. These things won't work. They won't work because they are not designed to work. At best, they are a, a temporary fix if they are a fix at all. Why? Because we have Christ. Christ is our hope. Not things of this world. Things of our thinking, our own imaginations. Christ is our only hope. Well, the 18th century term, the dark night of the soul, was used by when, uh, when referring to a spiritual dryness in the heart of a believer, the absence of experience, the experiencing the, the presence of God, and, and generally to describe um, an extremely difficult or painful period in one's life, the dark night of the soul. If you read the, the Puritans and some of the old dead guys of the of days gone by, you'll you'll see this phrase. The dark night or the dark night of the soul. The wisdom books in the Bible say much about discouragement and despair, and most point us to where hope is found during times of discouragement. So there is discouragement. There is answer. There are answers available. So this brings us to our text of this morning's sermon found in the book of Psalms, beginning in Psalm 42. And if you're not there, please turn in your Bibles or turn on your electronic device to Psalm 42. The book of Psalms has always been a, a favorite of God's people because the Psalms express honest, down-to-earth human experience. Honest thought, including the good and the not-so-good. And sometimes even the, the downright evil that's embedded in the human heart. It's a book of just raw reality. 
God is not afraid or sheltering us from real human emotion and tragedy and suffering. And he also blesses us greatly with joyful psalms of song and excitement about his worship and his temple and those kinds of things. So it's, it's really a mixed bag of a lot of things in the psalms. It's a, it's a wonderful book. Many psalms express the timeless and raw realities of, of the highs and the lows of life. The writers were not men who just wrote from their own lofty imagination and ivory tower of success. No, no. They were men who were inspired by God to write about their real-life experiences. And if you are not familiar with the word inspire, the way the Word of God uses inspire, it means to be God-breathed, out of the mouth of God directly. So even though these men faced these experiences, they were also inspired by God to write about them. Almost, if you will, a, a forced, not by forced kicking and screaming, but God changed them. God enabled them, and God breathed out his words through them in the Holy Scriptures, in all of Scripture. Well, Psalm 42 and 43 are, in some older manuscripts, are one psalm. So I'm going to treat them today as one psalm. Due to the structure, content, and wording, you'll see some of the phraseology duplicated in Psalm 42 and 43. So we'll keep them together for this study. So in Psalm 42, we have the, the record of an individual from one of the, the sons of Korah. Some little history about Korah. The, the, account of Korah. the account of Korah is found in Numbers 16. A little history on the sons of Korah. The, the Korahites were Levites. They, because, because through Kohath, Korah's father, and you can read more about that in 1 Corinthians 6 and uh, 1 Corinthians, 1 Chronicles, sorry, 6 and 2 Chronicles 20 for more detail. They were given the task of the performance of the temple music. When the Israelites were wandering in the desert, their father, Korah, led a rebellion of 250 leaders against Moses murmuring and complaining against Moses and God. And so what does God do? He, he steps in to that and quickly judge them by opening up the earth and swallowing them, swallowing them up. 250, one fell swoop. A little disturbing, right? The human heart human emotion, but that just tells you the severity of rebelling against God and how God deals with it. He does not take rebellion against him lightly. Well, the sons of Korah were dedicated to producing and performing the music used to praise God at the wilderness tabernacle and later in the temple at Jerusalem, Numbers 16, 26, 11. 
uh, Numbers 26.11. But notice on your scriptures and on your page of scripture here, we, you might have this, the title, um, mine says, Why You Cast Down on My Soul, uh, but that's by men. But 40, down below that, you'll see the choir master, or to the choir master, a masculine of the sons of Korah. Well, a masculine is just means, um, uh, the sons of Korah means that to have insight, to give insight, to, to be skillful. So you would say that this psalm and other psalms like it with that are mentioned a masculine uh, used to give us wisdom, wisdom for living, insight for living. In this psalm, you'll, you'll notice a pattern in it of lament to hope four times. Lament, 42, one, verses 1 through 4. Hope, verse 5. Lament, verse 6 and 7. Hope, verse 8. Lament, 9 and 10. Hope, 11. <laughs> lament, 43, 1 through 4. And hope in verse 5. So you see this switching back and forth in this psalm. In Psalm 42, we, we find the psalmist in a place of what he describes as being a, in a place of deep despair. And we will see why he is there. Notice, as you walk down through this psalm, he asks 11 questions in an attempt to figure out why he is where he is. He wants to know why. He wants a solution to his depression. In these two short psalms, we see that the, the psalmist is a, a deep thinker and that he has an insatiable desire for God and a passion to worship with the people of God in the temple of God. That's his, that's his heartbeat. That's what's driving him in this psalm. What drives you? Is there some passion you have whether it's in the word of God, around the word, centering around God and his thing, or some other passion. What is your passion? Maybe, maybe it's woodworking. I don't know. Maybe it's auto mechanics. But this, this passion, it drives you. You're consumed with it, always developing it, always investigating into it. I'm hoping it's the former. You have an insatiable desire for God and the things of God in your life. But notice the questions, 42.2. When shall I come and appear before God? 42.5. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you in despair, O my soul? 42.5 again. Why have you become disturbed within me? 42.9 and 10. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Why, God? Why am I here? He goes on, as a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Where is he? Verse 42, 11. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? 42.3, you are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? 
verse 5, 43.5. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? See the repetition here. See, the enemy of our soul loves to bring us to places of despair and discouragement and depression and all the down emotions of life. He loves to bring us or get us to those kinds of places. And I, as I was studying uh, this week, uh, I was thinking about this idea, and uh, we, we noted, where does it all begin? Where does all this, this stuff begin? Well, in the early chapters of the Bible in Genesis 3, the creation of God and creates man and woman. We see the the account of the account of how the devil uses doubt in the idea behind the phrase when he asks them, "Has God said?" You see, he he plants the seed of doubt in the mind, right out of this gate, right in the very beginning. And the other thing is discouragement and discontentment in the idea behind you can be like God. He just, he just probes that thinking about being discontent. Don't be, don't be happy where you are. You can have more. Man, is that a message today? You can have it all. And that's Satan's lie. He continues. He does not change his tactics. It's nothing new. Nothing. His methods don't change. I, I recently found a, a short allegory to read to you that describes Satan's tactics, Satan's tactics and tools that he uses against us as he seeks to sideline Christians from walking worthy of the calling to which we have been called. So it goes like this. Maybe some of you have read it or seen it or heard it. It's called Satan's Garage Sale. Satan's Garage Sale. Satan had it advertised that he was selling off many of his tools and he put on display some of his best items. Many demons showed up to see just what the devil was getting rid of that day. They came from all around to see what they could purchase to improve their shameful skills. Each tool sold almost as quickly as it was placed on the display table. Satan had carefully marked the price upon each tool. Anger, $100. Resentment, $400. Hatred, $600, etc. Anger was selling fairly low, so common, so plain, so effective. Greed brought a big price, and pride drove bids to high levels. Multiple copies of jealousy, the jealousy tool, were hot items. Lust, as always, was it bargain basement prices. There were tools that would make it easy to tear down others to use for, as stepping stones. Some lenses for magnifying one's own importance. And if you look through them the other way, they could be used to belittle others. There was an assortment of gardening implements to help one's pride to grow by leaps and bounds. The rake of scorn, the shovel of jealousy, along with the tools of gossip and backbiting, of selfishness and apathy. All were pleasing to the eye and came complete with fabulous promises of guarantees of prosperity. 
One visitor, as he browsed, noticed two well-worn, nondescript tools on the table in one corner. He found it curious that those two tools had no price tags. When he asked why, Satan just laughed and said, well, that's because I use them so much. If they weren't so plain looking, people might see them for what they are. This seemed to please the customer. He snatched up the tools and held them to his chest. With a glint in his eye, he asked the devil, how much for these? I'm sorry, those tools aren't for sale, the devil replied. Without hesitation, the customer said, I'll pay you any amount. The devil narrowed his eyes and hissed, I told you, those tools are not for sale, nor will I ever sell them. They are the most useful tools I own. Without them, I wouldn't be half as effective in my work. With those tools alone, I can accomplish my every task. Now, good day, sir. Disappointed, the customer looked once more at the shiny tools, then slowly placed them back on the table in the corner. With almost a whisper, he said to the devil, if I can't buy them, would you at least tell me their names? A slow and wicked grin grew across the devil's face. Satan pointed to the tool tools and said, you see, that one's doubt and that one's discouragement. And those will work when nothing else will. The devil continued, they are more useful to me than any of the others. When I can't bring down my victims with the rest of my tools, I use doubt and discouragement. With those tools alone, I can accomplish my every task. Perplexed, the customer wondered, wondered out loud, what's so special about those tools? The devil responded, nothing paralyzes a person. Nothing stops someone in their tracks like discouragement and doubt, resulting in hopelessness. Discouragement and doubt are no respecters of persons. They keep the unemployed unemployed, the homeless homeless, the sick sick. They can even draw the most powerful ministry to its knees. When overcome with discouragement and doubt, that leads to hopelessness. Per persons cannot pray, they cannot worship, and they become a victim of their environment. Discouragement and doubt drain their victims of courage, vision, faith, expectation, and will make well, well, to make a difference in the kingdom of God. If I can get people discouraged and full of doubt, then I can have successfully neutralized them. They are then left only with enough energy to feel hopeless and sorry for themselves. See, master of, is, the master of discouragement is Satan. Satan's garage sale is a fitting allegory because discouragement and despair are such a big part of life. It doesn't take much sometimes for us to fall into discouragement. So I want to ask you, how do you battle discouragement, despair, despondency, and words like that? How do you do it? Do you have a, a battle plan? Do you have a, a way that you get out of those 
those doldrums or those singing the blues kind of days. How do you battle discouragement? Well, there are many contributors to, to generate despair in the human soul. These, these two psalms list only a few that we will cover in our time together today. These psalms give at least five contributing factors for it. They provide, and they provide the remedy. They only list it, but they provide a remedy. Notice in verse 1, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? You see, this writer has an insatiable, insatiable thirst for God and to be in his presence with his people. So the first point we look at here is the first contribution to the writer's depression we see in this psalm is isolation. Isolation. The, the, the writer is isolated. Something or someone has forced him to be away from the temple presence of God and his people in worship. He is being forced to a, a desolate place far away from the place of worship by his enemies similar to how David was hunted down by Absalom as he drove David away. This psalm begins with his overwhelming, unsatisfied thirst for God, and he is unable to satisfy it. He says, as the deer pants for the streams of water. You get the imagery as a deer, hot day, being chased down maybe by some predator, Panting, looking for water. I don't know, but it's panting. It's thirsty, extremely thirsty. We don't know exactly where this unknown writer was, but notice in, in 42.6, chapter 42, verse 6, he says he is he's writing from the land of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. And Mizar means little hill, or little mountain. Today there is... No known, no known place by that name, but the, the land of Jordan is a region beyond the Jordan to the north and to the east, where Mount Hermon is. Hamzar is most likely a smaller mountain in the Hermon range. This area is far from Jerusalem, where the temple worship is taking place. So this Hermon and um, Mizar would be similar to uh, like the White Mountain National Forest, right? The presidential range where the, the height of Mount Washington is the most prominent uh, peak in our area, uh, I think in the east. And it's about 6,200 feet high. Uh, Hermon is about 9,000 feet high, so it's quite a bit larger. And then this idea of Mizar would be like a, a, a lesser peak in the White Mountain National Forest, say, of the the 4,000-foot range. There are many of them. There are 48 and more uh, that you can climb. And so it would be a, Misa would be a, a sub-peak, a lower peak. So he's somewhere in this wilderness area about the size, probably, of the White Mountain National Forest. He's, he's somewhere out there in this desolate place. And if you know anything about uh, the White Mountain National Forest or even New Hampshire at all, but in the White Mountain National Forest, there are some places that are very, very remote. 
very remote. There is no one around for miles. You get lost very quickly and even perish because they're that big. So the psalmist is, is far from home. He feels that he is therefore also far from God. It is not that he does not believe in God. He's talking to him. Right? So he, he is talking to God. He believes in God because God is everywhere. He knows that. He's omnipresent. He's praying to God in these sounds, but, but his being far away from home has gotten him down, very down, very low. And his depressed state has caused him to feel that God is absent or distant. Many of the psalms speak from the emotion of the writer's heart because our emotions are not trustworthy. We need God to give us truth and to shape our thinking. An important point to keep in mind when we play around with emotions is right here. When it comes to emotional problems, we are to use scripture to train our mind, to speak to and control our emotions at all times, rather than allowing the emotions to speak and control our mind. So we use our minds to control our emotions instead of letting our emotions control our minds. When it comes to this point of isolation that the writer is facing, have you ever been forced away from the public worship of God? We ought to all be able to answer that one real quick. You remember the COVID days, huh? the COVID months, when this place and many other places of worship were shut down. We were isolated, quarantined, no work, no shopping. Ladies, no shopping. <laughs> you remember those days? You couldn't come here to worship for many Sundays. We all experienced it. There's another aspect to this, this sense of isolation. One point we should remember about the sons of Korah was that their, their service was about the temple music. That was their living. That was their ministry. That was their life. That was their heartbeat in service to God. That was their vocation. So they, the author's forced absence from Jerusalem was also an absence from his work and ministry and therefore from his sense of being somewhat useful and even employed. You might understand this if you have ever become unemployed or stuck in a, a dead-end job facing, or facing an early forced retirement. These things can lead to depression like this for some people. So will old age as it sets in on us. When a person thinks that their useful days are over, that could certainly bring on some elements of despair. So you see the writer here is, is, is dripping with feeling. He feels cut off. He senses a, a cutoff and an isolation from God and the people of God as you read down through this psalm. He, in Psalm 42, notice, 42, two, notice he, he asked the question, when, when shall I come and appear before God? Well, the answer is found right there. Anytime. He can come to God anytime. Psalm 139, 7. 
Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. So here's an answer to the psalmist's question. He is everywhere. He is omnipresent. The second thing to notice here is his depression is provoked by even more by the mocking of his enemies. So he's isolated, and now come his enemies against him. Notice the deep depression and emotion that the psalmist has experienced here in verse 3, 9, and 10. And notice in 42, 1 and 2. Noting, notice his, his deep, crushing grief in verse 3. He says, my, my tears have been my food day and night. Sense the deep emotion on this man. Have you ever experienced these things? Taunting to the actual point of tears of grief or a crushed heart. Maybe some of you are even there now. Notice verse 3 and 10. Huh? See also 40 through 2. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? These taunters. Where, where, where is your God? You, you claim to know God. You claim to be a Christian. Uh, you're in this, this downtime. You're, you, you know, God is, is, is causing you some suffering, some uh, financial setback. Where's God? You, you, you claim that God is so big and so good and so wonderful. Where is he? You get it in the workplace. You get it in the family life. You hear these things, these tauntings. Well, this psalm writer is, is experiencing those things too. Where is your God? Normally when the scripture writers record a statement three times within a few verses, it signifies something of great significance here. This man is experiencing some significant suffering in his life. Have you ever experienced any of this from your, your family, friends, co-workers, or others as they, they mock you in your faith by asking you these kinds of questions? Where is your God? See, I think we've all been there to some degree, maybe not to the extent where he is, but we've been there to some extent. We've all experienced these things. And notice his position. He is a, a leader in the congregation. He's one of the, the big boys in the church, if you will. He's, the, he's the, the, one of the, the shepherds, one of the leaders of truth to the congregation, leading them in song and worship of our great God. You know, leaders do face these same discouragements as everybody else at times. And being with the, the congregation as we worship together is a huge deterrent against any, against any discouragement for all of us. He is far away from the congregation, alone, without any contact, and isolated. The result of his isolation has reduced his low spirit and produces a noise of mind. The word disturbed in the original language means noise or tumultuous. So he has a lot of noise going on up here. A lot of noise, a lot of voices speaking to him, literally and figuratively. Prolonged isolation is never a good thing. I don't know what you experienced with the COVID days, but it was not pretty for many people. Many people had problems. Uh, thinking problems, and so on. But it was not a good time here. So verse 5, Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? He asks again. Notice the solution and the believer's hope found in verse 5. Three things. One, hope in God. 
Number two, wait for God to help you. Number three, remember your past experiences with God. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. The word's meaning here is just wait. Wait on God. Be patient. He's around. He's here. He's coming. He will deliver one way or another. He may not rescue you out of your, if it's a physical trial. He may not. He may not ever. But he will rescue your mind if you allow that to happen. The third thing we see here is a, the third reason is that we, we that, that can contribute to despair is remembering the better times. Remembering the better times. I said earlier, the, the good old days in verse 42.4. He says, these things I remember and I pour out my soul within me, for I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. So he's remembering better days where he was with the people of God, with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. If you, if you read anything about the, the worship of ancient Israel, it was, a, it was a, a big deal, much bigger than what we do here. I mean, there was laughter, there was rejoicing, there were festivals, there was dancing, there was music, there was hustle, there was bustle. It went on for a long time, unlike what we do here sometimes. The best we're going to do in comparison to Israel is have a, have a food fest downstairs. Hey, much different, much more subdued than what was happening in Israel. Well, this, this psalm writer is remembering those days. It was big. It was his life. He lived it. It consumed him. It was his passion. That's what he lived for. That's what he worked for. Literally, he worked for it. Verse 6, he says, I remember you from a faraway place from the land of Jordan in the peaks of Hermon the Mount, and Mount Mazar. See, for some of us, our, our best memories are worshiping with other believers in the church of, on the Lord's Day. I, I have uh, five sons, older, they're all adults, and sometimes we'll sit around and reminisce you know, raising the church, we've been coming to this church for well over 30 years, and we reminisce. You remember, you know, when you were in Pathfinders and you did all these fun things, and we just go on and on about uh, some of those things. And it's a, it's just an exciting, wonderful time. The best memories are, are worshiping with other believers in church on the Lord's Day, or perhaps on special holiday seasons such as Christmas and Easter, for example. The absence of these times, as well as their remembrance, can contribute to his depression. They probably do. If you are depressed, I must ask you this question. What is your church attendance like? Is it like once every few months, hit or miss, whatever? What, what is it like for you in your church attendance? Do you have the, the mind of this guy? I mean, it drove him. He, he had to be with the people of God. Not just check off some list of good works, because he, he loved it. He wanted to be with God's people. That was his drive. So what, what drives you again? What is your appetite for church attendance? It's an important factor in your life. 
In Psalm, in, I'm sorry, Proverbs 18.1, we, we read here, he who separates himself seeks his own desire. He quarrels against all sound wisdom. You see, isolation is not wise. It's not a wise move for the Christian. Not only is it not wise because you, you lack input and excitement from other people, you lack hearing the word of God on a regular basis, and you don't grow in your faith. So as you probe your mind on these things, as the writer is doing here, and depending on how you answer these questions, may provide an answer as to why you might be in a place of discouragement. This man is remembering all that he had before he got to this place of discouragement. He is yearning for the presence of God and the blessings of God in the congregation. So verse 5, why are you in despair, O oh my soul? He asks it again. And why have you become disturbed within me? Again, he answers his own problem. He answers his own questions. He is, he is having some moments of self-discovery here, or even better, soul discovery. He's probing deep for some answers to his suffering. And again, he answers himself with truth. Notice, hope in God, for I shall pr again praise him for the help of his presence. He's despairing, but he's hopeful. He's lamenting, but he has hope. That's a good place to be. When you lament and you don't find any hope anywhere, you're in trouble. And if you're always hoping and you never have lament, it could be the same problem. You're in trouble. You're not growing. Because God, God brings us to the place of lament to grow us to be more like his son, who was the chief sufferer. He wants us to be like his son, Jesus, the man of sorrows. The Christian life is not a cakewalk. It can be a life of suffering. In fact, it will be a life of suffering, I guarantee you. So if you're here today and you've heard the gospel and you're not yet saved, you're thinking about it, God is, is pulling you in, understand this, that the Christian life is not a life of ease. There are many in this room who could testify. It is a hard life. It is a sorrowful life. But, don't misunderstand, there is also great joy in the life in Christ. A life you can never experience anywhere else. As the psalm writers in other places write about rejoicing in the Lord. Forty-two six. he asks a similar question and notice how he answers. He, he remembers God. Oh my God, my, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember you. See, his hardship is driving him to God, not away from God. And that's the design of trials. Don't misunderstand his transparency here. This man is not having a pity party. 
with himself. He is looking for a way out of his suffering and his inner turmoil by keeping his focus on God and on God alone. He never says, man, if I could just call my buddies over here to help me in this problem with my enemies. No, nope. he, he goes to God, directly goes to God. He waits on God. So for the Christian, isolation can sometimes have a positive outcome. You see, God allows us to face depression, but he doesn't give us permission to stay there. I'll say it again. God allows us to face suffering or depression, but he doesn't give us permission to stay there. He just doesn't. You can't find it anywhere in Scripture. You can find it in people, but it's because they're not transformed by the renewing of their mind in the Scriptures. So what are we to do? Well, as difficult as it may be, we are to do what James 2.4 says. James 1.2.4 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces, it produces steadfastness. It has positive results. Verse 4, and let steadfastness, steadfastness have its full effect. What is that? That you may be perfect. I'm not talking about perfection, never sinning. It's The word means mature. You can have maturity. You can have growth. And you can be complete in Christ. Lacking in nothing. And again, he's not talking about nothing of material goods. He's talking about lacking nothing in the sense of a spiritual destination. This is God's recipe for growth right here. Falling into various kinds of trials. This is a difficult thing to do. Just watch and ask anybody who is going through a trial. Big trial, little trial, doesn't matter. We, we should, one thing to note is we should never minimize someone's trials. Oh, you think it's so bad? Oh, let me tell you. There's trial boasting, you know. There's no place for that. Their trial is, important, is an important trial. God has ordained it for them specifically. So if you minimize someone's trial, you minimize God and his plan. Be careful. But we want to maximize our trials. Oh, you don't know what it's like. And oh, you know, in the beginning maybe, but as time goes on, if you're meeting with some solid Christians, reading the scriptures, waiting on God, you'll move away from that place. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, I'm here. I'll take your suffering because I know that it produces something in me to be more like Christ. So count it all joy. It's difficult. So God uses whatever trial we face to draw us back to him or draw us close to him if we have wandered or... He used it to grow our faith to be more like his son, Jesus Christ. The fourth thing we see is this crushing hardship of his life. 42.7. In verse 1, he has overwhelming thirst for God. Verse 7, he notices the mountain waterfalls of the peaks of Hermon and Mount Mizar, and the writer compares them to his overwhelming trials of his life, referring to them as breakers and waves that have rolled over him. So he's going from extreme thirst to being overwhelmed by water. He's in two places here. 
Another thing we see here, number five, is another contribution to discouragement is when we think that God has forgotten about us. We can easily get there, too. Verse 9, I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemies? Verse 10, a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me. Well, they say to me all day long, where is your God? He knows, Jesus knows our struggles. He knows his struggle. He, he asks the same question from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's no stranger. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Verse 11. Again, he answers his question, Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Well, the cure for depression uh, is, number one, don't give in to it. Get in the battle and fight against. Uh, when it comes to emotional problems, we ought to use scripture to train our mind to speak and control the emotions rather than allowing the emotions to speak and control our mind. The great book out, if you, you, if you face depression or you face trials or you want some insights from a, a godly man, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote the book Spiritual Depression, It's Causes and Cures, and I, I want to quote a, a little section here. Quote, he says, the main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why are you cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope thou in God. Instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way, and then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is and what God is and what God has done and what God has pledged himself to do. Then, having done that, end on this great note. Defy yourself and defy other people and defy the devil and the whole world and say, with this man, I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance, who is also the health of my countenance and my God, end quote. He put it well. It's a book written on Psalm 42. Worthy read if you want some encouragement. So let's end with this. Notice the, the writer's perspective even in his despondency. One, this, we can go right through this psalm. You can follow along as I go. Cultivate a thirst for the living God and stand before him continually. Verse 1 and 2. Number 2, ignore sinful thinking and transform your thinking to Christ's thinking. Romans 12, 2. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Prove what the will of God is. Number 3. I'm sorry, number 2. Second point, 2. 2B. Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10, destroy speculations and things that are not true and every lofty thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God. Take every thought captive. 
Third sub-point. Think on what is true. Philippians 4, 8, and 9. Right? Paul writes, finally, he concludes to his what he had said before. Brethren, whatever is true. And I'll, sub, I'll minimize it here. Think on these things. He gives a whole list of virtues that the Christian must be engaged in on an active and continual basis. Think on truth. Think what's true. Don't give in to the lies of the devil. Stay away from his yard sale. Garage sale. Think on what's true. Worthy of praise. Dwell on these things. You want the peace of God? Then be at peace with God. Um, in, in Philippians 4. Number three. Remember the past blessings of God and pour out your soul to him often. Verse 4. Number four, place your hope in God. He is our only present help in time of need. Hebrews 4, 16. Number five, recognize his strength and blessings, your weaknesses and despair, verses seven through nine. Number six, God is bigger than the enemies of your soul, verses nine and 10. Number seven, God is faithful. Faithful, he's trustworthy, always has been. Always will be. It's part of his nature. It's his character. Trustworthy. He's, he, can't, he can't be anything other than trustworthy. That's who he is. Trust him. Because you can. As, you're, as you came in today and you sat down in that chair without even thinking, you trusted it to hold you up and not collapse under you. Even more so, we trust God. He can't collapse. He never will. He never will. So simply trust in God. Verse 11. Verse 11. See, we have seen in Psalm 42 how the writer faced isolation, abuse, mocking, insults from his enemies, and he felt forsaken by God away from his presence and away from his presence. He felt that way, but it wasn't reality, and he knew it. See, he let the word of God change his thinking, not his thinking changed the word of God. He felt these things, but he tempered it by the word of God. We feel things, we must temper it by the word of God. We must. Because you're going to go down holes that you never want to go down if you don't. It's vital. See, Jesus, he experienced the same thing, but in much greater degree as he walked through the valley of the shadow of death on the cross. And he came out victorious. Why? He trusted the Father. He's trusted the Father's plan. So when you face things, I'll close with this, that you that lead you into places of and, of, and despair, remember, remember this scripture. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. The writer says this, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot... Sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Why? Wait, this is the question. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. To God be the glory.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, how it instructs us, it molds us, shapes us, and changes us as we read it, understand it, and apply it to our lives. So we ask you this morning that as we see ourselves in this psalmist's shoes at times, whether it's a greater degree or lesser degree, it doesn't matter. We, we all get there. We all face despair and discouragement, depression of some sort, some level. We ask you to help us to remember the way out. We have simply trust in Christ for an escape. Well, we know that you do all things for your glory. You cause all things to work for good for your people. And you grow us in Christ, to be like Christ for your glory. Help us with these things, we ask in Jesus' name.